Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. We're taking a little bit of a departure rather than a uh, community issue that might be um, focused on an individual town. We're looking a little broader today, and we're very happy to have um, Roxana Robinson back with us to talk about her new novel, Sparta. Uh, Sparta gives us the story of of uh, many Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans and their families uh, struggling to reconcile two worlds, the worlds that they um, trained for and the world that they returned to. And so, Roxana, we're so happy to have you back. Ron, it's very nice to be here. Thank you. So your novel um, reflects this notion of sending forth and the homecoming um, that we provide for young soldiers. Um, And there's some parallels um, to the historical Sparta. What what set you on this path? What what got you started? Well, the origin of the book, the way I first encountered the idea, um, took place about six or seven years ago. I don't know exactly when, but I read an article in the New York Times, um, which is now common knowledge. But at the time, this was the first my first encounter with it, and it was um, it was about our troops in Iraq. And at that time, they were driving in unarmored Humvees, which is essentially like a beach buggy. And they were sent out on patrol over roads that were studded with explosive devices. And they were suffering from traumatic brain injuries, and the military was reluctant to diagnose this. Mm. And the military took this position for two reasons. One, that it was it's very expensive to treat traumatic brain injuries. And two, it meant removing combatants from the field. And I was really horrified to realize that this is what we were doing to our troops. I had not supported the war. I had not voted for George Bush. But I had thought at least that as the greatest military power in the world, if we went to war, we would support our troops in the field, we would send them there with good equipment, and we would support them um, to the best of our ability while they were there. And discovering that these facts were not, this is not what was happening, was really shocking to me. And I started reading everything I could find about what it was like to be there in the field. And finally, um, it the subject just took me over. Mm. Mm. So we were we were prepared in some ways um, to go to war 
but not completely <laughs> um, because we didn't have the equipment and we weren't giving um, our troops the support they needed. We didn't have the equipment. I don't think we were. George Bush said afterwards he hadn't realized how long the war would take. Of course he didn't. He thought it would be over in a few weeks. Mm. It took 10 years. We didn't have enough men. Um, or women. We didn't have enough soldiers and we didn't have the right equipment. The Humvee, Humvees were not armored and they weren't um, the correct things to be driving in the sand. Mm. So we were woefully unprepared for this war. Mm. So Sparta tells um, is a story that's told through um, the experience of Conrad Farrell and his family. Um, that includes his mother and his father. Tell us a little bit about this family. Um, it, Conrad comes from a family of um, liberal Edu college educated people his mother's a th family therapist his father is a is a human rights lawyer a professor um, and they live in an old farmhouse out in the country outside New York City um, <clears throat> and both his parents grew up sort of in the shadow of the v Vietnam War which they protested so to learn that their son is joining the Marines is a real shock to mm -hmm. them. Why don't you read that passage um, that, that be, when they be really began to understand? This is, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's about um, 2001, spring of 2001, when this takes place. Exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. So this is, this is Conrad explaining to his parents. And Conrad is a classics major at Williams. So he is deeply involved himself intellectually in the ancient world. So this is from the book. Conrad talked about Homer. War was his great subject, how it changed history, affected families, changed young men. War was the route to nobility. Before Aeschylus died, he asked for his epitaph to mention only his achievements as a warrior, nothing about his plays. War, not art. As he talked, Conrad ran his hand down the cat Murphy's spine her tail sprang up with every stroke. It was too late for Lydia to say anything. She could see that. Lydia is his mother. Conrad was immersed in this, lost to it, in full spate. He was in love. It was in his voice. When he had finished, Lydia said tentatively, So, is it done? Final? Have you committed? I've signed up for this summer at OCS. Conrad sealed his lips shut over the word. It's done. He stroked harder. Murphy stood up in a distracted crouch, unsettled, swaying, her coat rippling. Conrad was leaving the world Lydia knew. He would enter another, alien to her, the strange, violent life of soldiers, where killing was the right thing to do. This was anathema, the very opposite of everything you brought up children to believe. Don't you remember, she wanted to say, what we always said about the military? Conrad saw her expression. It's not dangerous, he said. Don't worry, this is peacetime. It's not just that, she said. It's a different world. It was as though he were, he were declaring his plans to join another family. You can't do this, she wanted to say. You're one of us. Conrad watched her as he stroked the staggering cat. She could see that he could do as he chose. His life would unroll into the future. And in this way, watching her son stroking the cat, Lydia came to understand that the national memory did not work the way she'd thought. She saw that the shapes of ideas changed slowly, like clouds within the public mind. 
First, the shift of an outline, the blurring of edges. Then, mysteriously, according to some unseen current, the whole form alters. What had certainly been a high-heeled boot becomes, unmistakably, a swan. The idea of war is unacceptable. The military is unreliable, which seemed to Lydia to be fixed and, and immutable had changed completely. Those concepts, war and the military itself, were no longer scorned, not even among liberal intellectuals, not even among classics majors at liberal arts colleges. Somehow, while Lydia and Marshall were not looking, those ideas had become plausible, possibly necessary, maybe even laudable, anyway acceptable. More than that, they had become honorable. It was a mystery to her. Later, Jenny and Oliver, Conrad's younger siblings, came downstairs, and Conrad told them. Jenny came in slopping, wearing a ripped neck T-shirt and sweatpants, earbuds in her ears. The whistling slither of the music was audible to everyone, and though it was strictly forbidden to wear these at the table, Jenny made herself toast, brought it back to the table, and sat down without removing them. Lydia was too distracted by Conrad's news to say anything, but Jenny started eating and then realized what Con that Conrad was talking to her. She took off her earbuds and said, What? Pay attention, Conrad said. I'm joining the Marines. Jenny stared at him. You must be out of your mind. Or just maybe, Conrad said. You don't know what you're talking about. The white gloves, right? Conrad shook his head. You have much to learn. When Ollie came down, Conrad waited until he'd sat down with his cereal and then told him. The Marines, Ollie said. No way. The ones with the white gloves, Jenny said. Conrad rolled his eyes, but Lydia could see that he was more confident now. That night, when they went to bed, Lydia and Marshall talked more. Lydia closed the door to their bedroom. It was warm and peaceful with its own bay window and a window seat looking out towards the barn. The walls were papered with ferny green, the curtains fresh and white. In the corner was an upholstered chaise long, comfortable and inviting, in which no one ever sat. A white bookcase in the corner holding Lydia's favorite books and photographs of the children. Lydia leaned over the bureau to look in the mirror as she took off her earrings. So, what do you think, she asked. I'm flabbergasted. The Marines? She looked past in herself in the mirror at Marshall. I don't think I like it. I don't re recall being asked if we like it. Marshall unbuttoned some of his buttons and pulled his shirt over his head. But this isn't some summer job. It's dangerous, Lydia said. We should have some say about it. I don't actually think we do, Marshall said. But it's not dangerous. We're not at war. The military's always dangerous, Lydia said. What about those Marines in Somalia? There are thousands and thousands of Marines. A few died in Somalia. It could have happened anywhere. They could have died in a car crash. Lydia turned to him, but they didn't. That was a horrible death. Marshall said nothing. It's so strange of him. Where did he get the idea? Outside, the big sugar maples muffled the house in darkness. We're not supposed to know where our children get their ideas, Marshall said. It's a mystery. If we're successful parents, our children will invent themselves. 
Marshall stepped out of his pants and turned them upside down and swung them neatly over the back of the chair. Lydia sat down on the bed. She put her hands on her knees. I really don't like it, she said. I really don't. Marshall sat next to her and put his arm around her. It's something we didn't expect, but I think his mind is made up. He's 21. He's an adult. I don't think we have much choice. He has a year before he signs up for good. I hope he changes his mind. I can understand the appeal, Marshall said. Lydia frowned. Why do you keep saying that? You were a protester. Because I thought that war was morally wrong. I'm not opposed to all wars. Some have to be fought, like World War II. And I can see why Conrad wants to do this. It's the big test. I'm actually kind of proud he wants to take it. Well, in our generation, if you acted out of moral belief, you were a protester, Lydia said, or you joined the Peace Corps. So, maybe in his generation, you joined the Marine Corps, Marshall said. He, shook, he stood up again. Lydia shook her head. It's just insane. I know I'm supposed to adapt to this. I mean, I'm a family therapist. A mother has to let her children go. I know that. She shook her head again. But does she have to let them walk off a cliff? Mm. Roxana Robinson reading from her new novel, Sparta. She's our guest here on Talk of the Towns on WERU. And a little later on, we'll open up our phone lines to see if you as listeners have experiences or questions um, that you'd like to relate. Um, this passage for me um, kind of encapsulates um, in, in some ways how all of us were responding to young people going to war, having grown up thinking Vietnam was, was we learned something from that. We didn't seem to. And so you br bring all this together. The other thing that you have said is that you were surprised as you began to do your research, this notion of college-educated young men deciding that this was the way they could make a difference. They could respond to the test of adulthood, manhood. Yeah, I, it was something I wasn't aware of, and it wasn't just college-educated ed young men. It's a lot of um, young men, and I heard from a military spouse recently who said, I'm shocked that civilians don't understand that this is the reason most people went into the military, particularly after 9-11, um, and that it, it's something that... Um, it was really unseen in my civ civilian experience, but this notion of pride and um, courage and idealism, wanting to make a difference, wanting to rise to a challenge that they didn't find in the civilian world, wanting to serve. Um, so it, it, it's really a noble response that was invisible to me. Mm -hmm. So this this notion of, of Conrad... Um, disappointing in, in some ways his parents and yet um, his father has this respect. Um, say a little bit more about how you kind of came to that piece. Well, just um, being in the parents' minds as they were responding to it, I, I, I like arguments because they reveal so many different points of view about any topic and, and different people's characters. And, and I could... I, Marshall could could see this, could mm -hmm. see that there this was a way um, 
this was a way that was very honorable to mm. respond to mm. a global crisis. And even before, the, this was before 9-11, but this was a young man who didn't want to just end up on Wall Street and wanted to do something that had larger consequences and that didn't just involve himself. Mm. So um, I respect Conrad greatly for that, and so does Marshall. And mm. Lydia comes to, although she still right. feels protective of right. her child. Right. So let's um, fast forward a little bit, uh, describe um, uh, kind of Conrad's tours of duty. He's serves as an officer. Um, he's deployed in two kind of hot spots, Ramada and uh, Haditha. Um, he looks af- after his men. Um, he writes to his parents, uh, the parents of those who, who are killed in his unit. He does all the things that that um, um, are expected of him and he's trained for. Um, but he also faces um, a great tragedy in, in the fact that um, there's so- someone who is um, close to him that is killed. He, he holds him in his arms, Oliveira, is that right? Mm-hmm. And he can't do anything. Mm-hmm. He, can't, he can't help that person. And then later there's a description of, of him encountering um, uh, a family that's been murdered uh, by another unit in, re- in retaliation for a roadside bomb. It's this notion of, of the enemy is not visible not visible. Um, I'd like you to read a, a, another uh, passage in, in a minute, but I'm talking about mail, but this notion of his training leading him to this, it served him well. He, his training served him well. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things the Marines uh, training does is, uh, particularly for officers, is to teach you to take command, teach you um, what the responses should be so that in any situations you have a series of tasks that you must perform. So it gives you a sense of stability and a sense of control and a sense of purpose. So um, he 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 is well trained. He is a good officer. So there are things that he can do, but you can't you can't ever the the things that you need to do in any situation don't obliterate um, or remove the emotional trauma of that situation. So those those moments reverberate in his consciousness afterwards. Mm-hmm. Even though he did the right thing, mm-hmm. he can't ever escape the feelings that that went through him. Mm-hmm. And this notion of of being prepared for almost everything that comes up in terms of the physical and and the intellectual thing, but not for the emotional piece. There's there's no training that can do that. There's no training, and um, one of the Marines that I talked to, somebody I admire very much, very smart, and um, he wrote to me after he'd read the book and said um, that he he said nice things about the book, and and I wrote back and said, well, he said you you understood it or something. You understood war, and I said, well. One of the things, what I didn't know before I started this book was that I thought that war was about tactics and equipment and strategy and planning. And what I learned, which you already knew, was that war is about emotion. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go to that next uh, piece where Conrad is reflecting on his experience um, st- starting on the uh, uh, page 97. It's talking about the importance of mail. Um, in in a, a soldier's life. Mail was a fine line connecting you to the life you'd once had. Paper mail was best because it had been held by the person who wrote it. Not just letters from a girlfriend, which you also always sniffed, but ones from your family. You knew that when this letter was written, your mother was sitting at the kitchen table looking out the window at the garden in winter. 
The paper itself had been there in the room while garlic sizzled in a pan. It was there when your father came in the back door from the train, his face and hands cold. You could hold the piece of paper and read it over and over wherever you were, and it reminded you of that other that the other place was real and that you'd go back there. That June in Ramadi, insurgents started sending rockets and mortars onto the base. The perimeter fence kept them at a distance, so they couldn't see where they were sending them. They just lobbed them over at random. Sometimes the mortars missed everyone and everything, exploding harmlessly, and sometimes they were duds and didn't explode at all, and sometimes they took someone's leg off, like Kuchnik, who was in their sister platoon and was on his way over to the mess hall with his buddy, Colbert. Halfway there, Kuchnik remembered a letter he wanted to mail to his girlfriend. He went back for it, and Colbert went on ahead. Kuchnik got the letter and started back to the mess hall and was nearly there when the rocket landed. It didn't hit him, though. It landed right beside him. It hit a utility pole, and the impact detonated the rocket's hot metal penetrator. White hot metal shards pierced Kuchnik's thigh, severing the, f the femoral artery. Kuchnik lay in the sand outside the mess hall, screaming and bleeding out, still holding the letter. Doc Whitman came running, but he was on his way to the shower and was wearing only his PT shorts and didn't have a tourniquet. They finally got Kuchnik tourniqueted and medevaced out to Landstuhl in Germany, where the trauma hospital was. But by then he'd lost a lot of blood, and even though they got him stabilized on the flight over, two days after he got to Frankfurt, he died of organ failure. He was 20 feet from the door of the mess hall, which had sandbags around it to protect it from blasts. Colbert had already gone inside and was standing in line. Afterward, it was impossible to get all the blood out from the sand, and for weeks after, going in and out of the mess hall, you walked over a dim stain on the ground from Kuchnik. At the beginning, when he was still alive, you thought of it as blood, but after he died, you thought of it as Kuchnik. Email and phone calls were not as good as actual letters. In Ramadi, at first there weren't enough computers to use for email, though later they could use it sometimes. At Sparta, things were more basic, and they rarely had Internet access. They could almost never use phones. But in any case, everyone knew by then that phone calls were never as good as you'd hoped they'd be. They had those electronic gaps, overlapping voices, the ringing sounds of distance, starting and stopping, misunderstandings. Both of you trying to put too much into the words, more than was possible. You could never say what was really going on, so you were left talking about scraps of nothing, and you couldn't hear very well. And the calls were always over too soon, before you'd said what you meant to say, and afterward they were gone completely. No way to remember exactly what had been said, what the tone of voice was, and no way to rehear them. But letters you carried with you. You kept them in your pocket or under your pillow if you had one. You put them inside your helmet, or just inside your sea bag, or in your boot or your locker, somewhere where they were safe and you could touch them. Sometimes you just wanted to run your fingertips across the envelope. That was enough. Sometimes you wanted to take the letter out, unfold it, and read it again, so you knew you'd had another life once, been part of another world.
Mm. Again, Roxana Robinson reading from her new book, a new novel, Sparta. That notion of, of um, him being in the, the, the desert, basically, but recalling his life back home, that's the beginning of this notion that he, was, he, he had these two worlds that he was trying to relate to. Very powerful kind of vision. Those of us who have been away from home um, kind of recognize it, but only in, the, in a shadow to what you're ex- expressing here. The two worlds are so are different to such a great degree that it's almost impossible to hold them both in your head at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to, uh, the last piece that you read is a very, very short one, but it's reflecting on this, this two worlds. Um, so we, we, let's go to that uh, piece now. Again, um, uh, Roxana Robinson reading from Sparta, and this is uh, uh, on the page, uh, t- page 319. There were two worlds. These considerations were part of the lower world. That was the dark, dreaming undercurrent, both nightmare and solace, that ran along between this world. That was the world you entered at night, the one that suddenly intruded into your mind, the one of blooming explosions and blood. And that was the world you sank into. That that was where you thought of giving yourself up, letting yourself drift downward into the dim, aqueous shafts of light and shadow. That was the world where you yielded to the slow, silent movements of the deep, where you were embraced wholly, every part of you clasped, water kissing and surrounding you like air, where you were carried, weightless, your limbs loose, your body beloved by the mindless surge. But the world below was not where you lived. Where you lived was in the upper world, the one where the light came flooding in, harsh and bright and obligatory, slicing through the air like metal wire, where something angular and unyielding, duty, a moral obligation to a larger larger metaphysical system, made a labyrinth across the landscape, defining the path. You had no choice but to walk through it, turning here and turning there. In that landscape, there was no going backward, and there was no horizon, no reach, no future, only the short view. You had no right to stop, to not keep going. Your only choice was to continue the mission. Mm. Roxana Robinson again, reading from her novel, Sparta. Um, so there's two, two pieces there, continuing the mission. Um, that seems to be, again, going back to that training, um, that is what allows Conrad to, to uh, keep going as he comes home as he comes home. Say a little bit more about where where you began to understand that notion of mission as you talked to Marines. Um, it, it, it became apparent to me that that's really central to the training that they receive. And they have this um, sort of code word phrase, which is Charlie Mike, which means continue the mission. And that's that's their mantra. You never stop. You never give up, no matter what. You drag yourself across under fire to retrieve a fallen comrade. You, you keep going. You call in for air support. You, you never quit. Um, and that's one of the most impressive things about Marines, that feeling of, of commitment. Mm-hmm. As you did your research, um, 
you had new tools to use. Uh, if you think of someone writing a, um, a novel that has historical elements, we think of, oh, we can go to the newspaper and we read uh, the newspaper account, or we can see historical um, writings about something. You use something very immediate. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, it was very, I, I was I was doing everything I could to learn about what it was like to be a soldier in Iraq. And uh, so I read everything I could find that was um, about soldiers on the ground. And I read, as they started to appear, I read first-person narratives, memoirs written by returning vets. But I also was given these new opportunities by technology. And so I read the military blogs, which were later stopped, I think. But for a, a, a quite a while, you could, receive, you could read the blogs of soldiers who were there, and they were talking about what happened day to day. So that was incredibly informative and, and very exciting for me. Um, and you could also watch on YouTube. Um, people got little baby cams, which they have uh, attached to the fronts of their helmets, and they would wear them when they went out on patrol, and they would turn them on when anything happened. So you could watch on YouTube. You could be in the middle of a firefight, and you could be on the helmet of somebody who was shooting back at someone who was shooting from a down the street. So it was a very visceral um, way to learn and understand that experience. Mm-hmm. So then um, you, it sounds like this, the research for this was, was vast. It sounds like you were engaged in this for a long time. It took five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was the longest um really the longest time I've spent on, on a book but it was there was so much information mm. um, yeah. and and you and you talked with Marines with with people there so tell us about how you found them and, and what that was like um, that was of course the best and most important uh, way to learn about this was talking to people face to face and uh, it was hard starting out because uh, the military is quite insular and protective of its own and so I didn't find any way in in terms of the institution but I did begin to find ways in that were um, more informal and I got in touch with several veterans organizations who put my name up on an electronic Mm. billboard and Mm. so uh, bulletin board and so I I got responses through that and met people that way Um, I used serendipity I sat next to a man at dinner who told me his his son was a Marine vet, and so I ended up talking to him. I met somebody in the ER once who was um, a medic who'd been there, um, and I uh, I just made connections uh, through word of mouth, and that was the best. And so once I had talked to one person, he would give me the names of other people, and mm-hmm. He, because he had given me their names, they would respond to me. And I drove all over the Northeast, and I met with people at their houses, and I met with them at cafes, and I talked to their kids and their wives and their parents and watched their faces and listened to their voices and watched their... One one of the vets had made a little video of his time in Iraq, so I watched that, and he put an, a music soundtrack on it. Where, you know, that was wonderful. Mm. So I, I heard all kinds of... I talked to people by phone, some people who were too far for me to meet with. Um, and you came to Bangor and, and hung out at the airport? I did. Um, the Bangor airport, as probably everyone listening knows, was a really important receiving area for returning troops. Um, and I found it very powerful to stand and, and watch as they came off and were greeted. And there was a greeting room there, and I went in there and 
watched and listened to um, what was going on in there. So that, yeah, that mm. was part of it. Mm. Well, I just want to remind our listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having a conversation about Sparta, a new novel by Roxana Robinson. And uh, we'll open up our phone lines if you've got questions or um, your own experience to relate. Give us a call, one 866 or locally, 469-0500. Roxana, one of the, the, um, the kind of the arcs of the novel is really Conrad's return home and his attempts to um, make sense of the two worlds. Um, and we won't, won't reveal things, because like I really want people to read this, but um, you began to understand what that journey was like, um, the return home, not just the, the time in Iraq, but the return home. Um, what was your research like around that piece? Um, again, it was it was talking to vets and, and listening to their voices and watching their faces. Um, one of the most touching moments for me was was talking to a man who's who invited me to his house and I met his wife and I said to and I w- approached these subjects slowly and we talked about a lot of other things and then I said um so coming back what was most difficult for you what was the moment that was a moment that was particularly hard and his face kind of closed down and he looked at the floor and he started talking about being at his cousin's wedding and I said, and what, and what was it that, why was that so difficult? And he said, there were so many people there and they were talking and there was so much noise. And his face, what he was saying wasn't really troubling. It didn't mm-hmm. sound troubling to me, but looking at his face, it was so clear that it, this was deeply troubling to him. And I looked at his wife and she was in tears. She was watching her husband and just weeping at the memory of this moment. And it was so clear to me that um, this just changed people in a way that civilians were not understanding. We couldn't see it. We didn't, we didn't, couldn't apprehend it. And we didn't know what to do with it. Mm. And um, uh, you've got a a wonderful uh, reviewer um, in the New York Times uh, um, coming out this Sunday, I understand. And um, that review um, speaks about Conrad's difficulty walking in the streets of New York and and how confusing it was because people weren't reacting or acting how he, they th- he thought they should. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that happens to vets who've come back from a war zone is something called hypervigilance. And it's a very natural, normal um, response for them to have f- coming from a war zone because you are at risk all the time. As soon as you're outside the wire, you're at risk. So for Conrad to walk through crowded streets where people are carrying um, bags and bundles and there's pl- there are plate glass windows around and cars backfiring nearby, it, it, for him, it's less like being in a combat zone and he can't he can't stop his reactions they are so deeply ingrained in him and he's because he's been in explosions himself and he's watched people die he simply can't stop himself from having these reactions Mm. and even to the point of when he's driving with his family somewhere he's driving as though he were still there and reacting to a white car yeah, uh, um, almost everybody in Iraq drove white cars, some small white sedans, so that the sig- seeing that was a signal to him that he mm. was in back in a dangerous situation. And um, I had one Marine friend who re- read the book, and she said I had to put I had to put the book down at that point. That was so 
that just awoke all those feelings in me mm. of the, the feeling of being on the road and being at risk. The cars would drive up next to the vehicle and they would it would be a suicide bomber and they would explode and they would kill people. So he he's again, he simply can't not react the way he does. Mm. Mm. So um, the word, uh, the, the name Sparta, we've got historical references to, to uh, um, Greece. Um, you've, done, you've done a little wonderful summary of, of what the military um, notion of, of Sparta was like. And then that's also the name of the camp that uh, Conrad lives in. Um, give us a, a little bit of that, that historical research that you, you came to in terms of how um, young men were raised. Um, I was I was fascinated to learn that that there is a, a historical philosophical connection between the Marines and the the ancient city state of Sparta, um, and they feel a real um, kinship for it because it was based on a set of ideals and a set of the idea of war, um, but also nobility and courage and honor. Um, so it's, it's it's something that makes them feel proud and they refer to it a lot so that the stripe of red down the dress trousers is called Spartan red and they use the word Sparta all the time and um, there was a camp in Haditha that was called Sparta. So I, and at the bookstore in Quantico, um, they sell the book, uh, The History of the Peloponnesian Wars. Mm. So it's a very present notion for them. And that was, that was fascinating to me. And it sort of gave me direct access to one, one kind of, one element of the, uh, the mind of a Marine. Um, and in Sparta, I was, once I started reading about it, I was fascinated and sort of horrified to find out the way they treated their um, their soldiers. And in Sparta, you could only be a citizen if you were male. And women had no citizenship. And um, the, the babies were examined at birth. And if a, if a baby was deformed or um, incorrect in any way, they left the baby on the hillside exposing it to die because they didn't want any physical malformation in the in their citizenship once you be once you were allowed to grow up you um, entered a training school called the agoji at the age of seven and you left your family and you never you never returned to your the family of your birth you lived in the agoji until you were in your late teens and in the agoji you were treated very harshly um, you were given one piece of clothing a year it was a cloak and that was all you were given enough food barely to survive on, but not really enough so that um, that encouraged stealing so that you were had to steal to keep yourself alive and you were punished if you were caught. it's it wasn't it wasn't um, a benign lack. it was it was you were exposing yourself to risks on all counts. Um, you were taught you were taught the art of being a soldier. you were also taught uh, um, athletics and other things as well, but it was the art of the military that was central to this community. And then um, there was an elite force um, it, it, once you were had reached the end of the Agoje, and those people the, um, were sent into the fields where the Helots were lived, and the Helots were slaves mm. who were brought back from conquests in foreign countries, and the Helots were treated extremely badly. 
um, they were reviled and held in contempt, but they actually did all the work of Sparta because since all the citizens were soldiers, they were always off fighting wars, and it was an agricultural society, um, landlocked. And so the Helots did all the agriculture, but they were kept outside the city, the center of the country, Many of them, they spoke different languages because they were from different places, and they were rut- routinely mocked and ridiculed so that they would never feel powerful enough to revolt. Um, and this elite core, uh, once a year, were, were sent out into the fields, and they were encouraged to kill the Helots under cover of darkness. Um, and f- for this, although ordinarily murder was a, considered a capital crime, um, at this time they were allowed to kill with impunity. And it's the only training ground I've ever heard of in the history of the world in which actual killing was part of the training. Mm. Um, so that was quite gruesome and horrifying to learn. Um, after they graduated from the Agoji, then they were then they were real soldiers. They still lived in a soldier's community. They did marry um, and were encouraged to have children, but it came late for them. So what happened to Sparta was that um, because everything else was subjugated to the military, the culture finally sort of started dying out from within. They they didn't have very many children because they were away so much and because they married late. And the Helot population kept growing. Helots were never allowed to become citizens of Sparta, or they could under very, very particular circumstances. It was very rare. So they had a growing population of angry slaves and a diminishing population of soldiers. And it finally sort of collapsed in on itself. Mm. So it's a, it was a fascinating sociological study Mm. um, in a culture that focused on one thing only Mm. and succeeded at it and then then failed. (laughs) So so as we think about that culture, um, not too much said about how um, they might have prepared um, the soldiers to re-enter life. They were always soldiers, I guess. So they didn't have that question that Conrad is facing of re-entering um, his 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 other life basically. Um, Conrad struggles um, with with this, and um, you have him kind of really reluctant to seek formal help. Um, th- did that come through in your research and your interviews? And when he actually gets help, um, it isn't very helpful. Yes, I was really interested um, to to learn about what help had been sought and by whom and under what circumstances. First of all, particularly in the Marines, you are trained not to ask for help. So that's the first barrier. Um, you're trained to suck it up and continue the mission and not to not to complain because, of course, in a war zone, <laughs> you would be complaining all the time. So that's, that's sort of um, your first the first rule is don't complain and don't, don't ask for help. You, you can do this on your own. Secondly, when people do become depressed, of course, in any situation, depression kind of militates against seeking help. But also, um, people in the military are very reluctant to talk to people in the civilian world about what they've gone through because of this huge gap between the two kinds of experiences. So they were, they're very reluctant, in my experience, to talk to any civilian therapist because they don't think the therapist will understand. And even um, in a religious setting, I talked to somebody who uh, said that uh, people who wanted to to um, give confession, mm. 
He said, I would never, I would send them to a particular group of priests who would take it very seriously. He said, the risk is that you're sent to a priest who says, you know, do the rosary 10 times and you'll be fine because you, you were expected to do this and God will forgive you and don't worry about it. But that's not what they want. They want it to be taken seriously. They want to be given um, penance that makes them feel that they really have to have to do something seriously as penance because um, they want they want to feel understood. They want this mm-hmm. experience to feel um, as large to someone else as it does to them. So they had a the people I talked to had a very difficult time in in admitting to themselves that they needed help, admitting that they should seek help, and then finding a kind of help that would be useful to them. Mm-hmm. So, and and uh, Conrad's parents, his siblings, especially his sister, and his girlfriend all make attempts to reach out to break through that um, in, in ability or the reluctance to talk. And they all aren't able to do that. Um, one of the things about this experience is, and, and I, um, I've talked to a lot of vets, when you actually say it, it doesn't sound as large as it feels. Mm. So f- and also, people don't want to shock their families. They don't want to tell them the worst. Mm. They feel just the way they wanted. They joined the military in order to serve and protect people. They still want to protect people. And why would you visit this on your family? So um, those two things are part of the prevention that vets feel from revealing what has actually happened. So... Um, it's hard to articulate, and you don't want to impose this kind of suffering on your family. Mm. I'm talking with Roxana Robinson about her new novel, Sparta. And uh, if you'd like to call and you know, give us a, a question or relate your own experience, uh, please do so. one 625 9378 or locally 469-0500. Um, so... One of the, the, the backdrop kind of uh, facts that you related in a talk um, at College of Atlantic the other day was the number of suicides. So this is a, a backdrop. Tell us those statistics if you could, if you can remember those. Um, the statistic that I used was 22 suicides a day, mm-hmm. and that came from the VA. Um, I since read a comment from somebody saying that that was um, that they didn't take age into account and so that that would include um, veterans from the Vietnam War and so it was spread out over a lar- larger population it's still a very large number it's mm. 8000 people a year mm. it, did you get any sense that, that the military is is helping um, young soldiers knowing that this this um, this gap is going to be there is there any help given to soldiers before they um, are discharged to help them say these are this, these are the ways that we can help you cope? Um, I've read different things that uh, yes, the VA says that it's it's trying, and yes, there are certain there were certain programs people people would go for two weeks to a sort of a decompression zone. I've heard from vets that, that didn't make any difference that they just sat around in the sand and waited to go home. Um, I've heard spouses say none of these programs help. I've heard some people say that they are making an effort. So mm-hmm. I think there's a wide spectrum mm-hmm. of, of response. We do have a, a phone call if you'd like to go ahead. Um, give us the first name. Uh, your first name and, and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, my name is Peter. I'm calling from Surrey, but um, I'm visiting. I'm from South Hadley, Massachusetts, and my son was a classics major, 
hmm. at the University of Chicago, and he's now a first lieutenant in the U.S. Marine Corps. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so life imitates art, I guess. So this sounds familiar to you? Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds real familiar to me. I mean, he came back from Afghanistan in April, and they're basically at this point... Um, I guess what they're doing there. there were, he was at a forward, forward operating base mm-hmm. in Helmand Province, and I guess basically they're maintaining presence. So, you know, thank God he really didn't, you know, he wasn't, uh, he's an infantry officer. He wanted to be an infantry officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to do the hardest thing that was possible. But at this point, they're maintaining presence. They really weren't going going a lot outside the wire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't see anything like intense combat, so he came back. Um, in pretty good shape. He's got about a year and a half left on his first commission, and um, I'm not exactly sure whether or not he's going to continue, continue, or, continue or not. So, you know, so we're you know part way in, into the story. You know, when you when he told you that he was going into the Marine Corps, what was your response? Um, I was okay with it because actually. Um, you know, we we'd had a lot of discussions. My father was in the service in World War II. I had always, you know, thought I would, you know, go into the service as part of the things I would do in life. And then Vietnam came along, and you know, he didn't want me to go in. Um, but Mike and I had a lot of. I, I'm I'm a I'm a professor at a, a small liberal arts college, and Mike and I, you know, as he was growing up, we had to talk about in the way that you know, you know, people like us, um, you know, you know, don't go into the military these days. Um, and it's it's kind of it's you know there's there's a problem there you know the kind of growing division between um, you know the military and society and things like that and um, he had you know he, you know after nine eleven he thought of it then he um, put the idea away and then sometime in his junior year at, at university he you know he he picked it up again he was he was in an ROTC and he really you know did the work with a recruiter there worked like hell and he got into you know, you know what the Marine Corps requires. He not only did he get into the, you know, he passed the physical, he, got, he made it through OCS, and he made it through IOC, mm-hmm. you know, Infantry Officers Candidate School. There was an article. You know, you know what that means, and and now he's an infantry officer. So mm-hmm. wow. we were we were okay with it because we sort of talked, you know, a lot about it and about you know notions of of um, you know the kind of thing, honor, courage, and bravery, and these things you know still mean something, mm-hmm. even though there is a you know, significant portion of the intellectual class, which tends to demystify and discount these things, that these things made a difference. The other thing, he was convinced that, you know, that a citizen of a republic should wear the uniform yeah. of that republic. So all those things that you were talking about in your book, um, you know, about the young man's motives, you know, make, make sense to me. I think as parents... Um, as a parent, my reaction was sort of different. It wasn't so. It was more like the husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but even his mother was okay with that, you know. So, so we had a different different reaction in our case. But we were very very lucky. Like I say, he can't, he's you know we, we, you know as much as we know, um, he seems to have come back you know uh, unscarred at this point because like I say, they weren't in the real combat situations. They're just maintaining presence. And yet, uh, yeah. Peter, your son has to have had um, colleagues. Um, have those those incidents in war um, that makes him realize. Of course, you know, yes. they, they absolutely realize that, you know, they make that very, um, you know, clear from the beginning that, you know, the, the, you know their, their business is, 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 you know, they, they kill people and, uh, and, and d- destroy things. So the, the, the mm. colonel at OCS um, made, that, made that very clear. And, you know, they know that there are going to be points where they're going to have to, you know, deal with, you know, death and destruction, but, 
Um, but you know, but knowing it and going through it is obviously um, something very different. Right. Peter, thanks so much for your call this morning. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We do have another call. If you'd go ahead, um, give us the first name and your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, this, <clears throat> pardon me, I've just got something in my throat here. <clears throat> uh, it's Mariah from Liberty. And um, I'm um, grateful so much for this book and for your reading of it. It's um, incredibly well written based on what I'm hearing here, and um, I love the way you read it. It's uh, <clears throat> it's done two things. <clears throat> One is um, I have a brother-in-law who's an ex-marine, and when you were talking about... Um, and never giving up, I can certainly see that quality in him. And I have a greater understanding for how he evolved to become that person. But the other thing is when Peter just called and spoke about <clears throat> being, you know, having the conversation, the conversation with his son um, <clears throat> over the years and needing to wear the uniform of the Republic, there was something in that that just triggered my own... Um, discomfort with this whole military thing in <clears throat> that I suppose there might be situations in which um, people should um, go to the extremes that war demands <clears throat> than the war has demanded and the extremes are far worse now than I believe they were. Well, I don't know, maybe they aren't, but in any case, it's, it seems to me those demands are, those situations are extremely rare, and it would be incredibly difficult for me to be personally okay with um, either of my children going into the military under the current circumstances with um, wars which are not defending this country or um, you know, bringing liberty and justice and democracy to those people who, that we're decimating. Mm. Mariah, so we, we've got bias here. Mariah, we've got a couple other phone calls. So thank sure, you so much for your really. thank you so much for your call. Sure. Uh, Roxana, um, just a, a brief comment, if you could. Um, you grew up as a Quaker, <laughs> um, and yet it sounds like you've really come to understand at least the motivation for the Marines that you talked with. I did. I did grow up as a Quaker, and. It, so, which meant that that this whole uh, community was ex- extremely unfamiliar to me, and the, and the mindset was completely unfamiliar. But I did I grew to feel that I could understand it and and very much respect it. It's it's not something that I agree with, but um, like the last caller, caller, I don't really support the. I just certainly did not support the war in Iraq, but I did um, come to admire and respect the people who felt the way they did about. Mm. And I think the idea of of wearing the the uniform of the Republican of the Republic is a very distinguished hmm. idea. Um, and we could have another show about maybe reviving the draft because that yeah. would equalize that. Let's take two short phone calls and see if we we have one more. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, but make it brief, please. Yes, go ahead. Hello, this is Frank in Lemoyne. Hi, Frank. Um, even in your disdain for war, which a lot of people, most people, hopefully have, by having the right, you're, we're glorifying it. Even, even anti-war stuff glorifies it. When is the human race going to stop building statues 
of people who go killing people. I mean, those statues of peace people. Mm. It's just a disdain for war. Hey, whatever. <laughs> it's just kind of like, here we are, WERU, talking about war, 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 war. Let's kill people, kill people, kill people. It's just bizarre. Okay, Frank. Don't thanks. understand it. Don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for your call this morning. Roxanne, I want to, uh, we're almost at the end of the hour, but I want to um, go back to the, uh, um, the epigraph. Um, tell us a little bit about where you found that and give us the background for uh, Simone Weil's comment there. Um, well, I found this wonderful essay by Simone Weil. Um, it's called The Iliad or the Poem of Force, in which it's a 24-page essay that she wrote um, about the Iliad itself, and she talks about force as the main, as the center of the poem. And it's not exactly war, it's the idea of force, and, and force is that, that power which can turn any other person into a thing, either a slave or a corpse. And how force drives the poem, and nobody is in control of force. So even if you're the person using the force, you are just as subject to, at, you are just, just as much at risk mm -hmm. as the people who force is being used on. So she turns it into this, instead of a glorification of war, it is, it is um, she's bearing witness to the kind of horrifying anarchy of war and the fa this feeling of constant um, lack of control, the, th the fact that all the warriors think they're in control, they are never in control, that this sense of rage and, and force drives them and drives them to destruction. And she says that um, throughout the poem, the presence of love and justice are are rarely mentioned, but they cast this light throughout the poem. Mm. Would it, you read that epigraph? Have you got it right there? I, I got it right, right here. Yes. It is, The man who does not wear the armor of the lie cannot experience force without being touched by it to the very soul. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us here on Talk of the Towns. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Karnak on a Balnane House Highland music recording. All of our shows are in the WERU archives. Thanks again so much to Roxana Robinson to, for bringing her new novel Sparta to us here on WERU. Thanks to our listeners who called in with their experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs>